Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. It's the podcast that's all about the cuisine that is said to have founded modern cooking. French ingredients and dishes have been the starting block for many of the world's best chefs and cooks. On Fabulously Delicious, you'll learn all about those dishes and ingredients, as well as get to know more about those fabulous French chefs and cooks. I'm your host, Andrew Pryor. Enchanté. Enchanté. Ten years ago, my life changed when I competed on MasterChef Australia, and now I'm living my best French life in the French countryside. My life is all about cooking, eating, and living life the best way I can. I love meeting wonderful food producers, chefs, home cooks, drinking amazing wines, eating some of the over 1,500, would you believe, French cheeses, and sharing those fabulous experiences with you, my fabulously delicious audience. I hope you're enjoying them. Today, we are celebrating the second anniversary. Yes, that's right, the second anniversary of Fabulously Delicious. Merci beaucoup to you all for listening and contributing to the success of Fabulously Delicious. We are in our third season with two years, 84 episodes, 51 guests, and over 49 hours of content devoted to French food. So, this episode is a celebration of some of my most favourite parts of just a few of those episodes. If you like them, then you can check out the links to the full episodes in the show notes of this episode. So sit back, turn the volume up. If you're not driving, pour yourself a glass of wine, break a baguette, add a bit of saucisson, maybe some of the delicious cheese that I mentioned before, and enjoy today's episode of Fabulously Delicious, whilst we celebrate two years of fabulously delicious French food. The very first episode of Fabulously Delicious was with American pastry chef Molly Wilkinson. Molly is an Instagram sensation and runs a fabulous online pastry cooking school, as well as doing cooking classes in person in her fabulous apartment in Versailles. I had to ask the most important question when it comes to macarons, and I think you'll love this response. So let's hear what Molly thinks to the question I've been asking for a while now, and that is, what's the difference between a macaron? A macaroon and macaron. <laughs> okay, so I will admit I do say macaroon quite a lot because I'm American. And macaroon spelled with two O's are actually the coconut concoction. All right, so it's the pile of coconut and it's usually dipped in chocolate. They're super delicious, but very different from the French macaron, okay, spelled with one O. Um, that is what is super popular today with the two cookies that sandwich together a really delicious filling. And then Macron is the French president. <laughs> so also very different. Something that I love about talking French food with people on Fabulously Delicious is getting to know the guests through their food memories. And with that, learn not only about them, but also about the dishes and ingredients through those chats. Maxine Kine, a French chef working in New York City, was talking about his memories of his father when we also got to learn about the French street food, soccer. Take a listen. One of the memories you have with your father is him taking you to the market there in Menton, which is an amazing place, and having soccer. Have I pronounced it correctly? Is it soccer? And can you explain what that is? Because I know what it is, and it is delicious. So, soca is almost like a little uh, a flat pancake. 
So like in Italy, they do the polenta, which is done with the, uh, the, the, the court meal with the polenta. But in France, we do the chickpea. So you make a mix with uh, the, 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 the chickpea flour, olive oil, salt, pepper, um, and uh, some water. And then when you do your mix and you have like almost like a, a thick bottom pan that you're going to warm up in the oven. So it gets kind of really hot. And then you pour the mix inside, you put that back inside the oven. So it's going to be very, very crispy. And you need to make sure it's very thin. It's almost like a, like a crepe, you know, like almost like a, like a very, very thin pancake. Uh, but it gets crispy and they, they pull it out of the oven and they use almost like a pizza wheel, you know, to cut it, if you will, and finish it with like a little bit of uh, olive oil and uh, a little bit of fleur de sel, like, you know, sea salt and a lot of fresh cracked black pepper. And so the memories that I had is like my dad would put me on his motorcycle and, um, you know, I would be, you know, like in the front holding on the, uh, on, the, on the gas tank and, you know, we would go to the market and there was that old um, lady and, you know, she, would, she was dressed like, you know, the traditional way in South of France for like, you know, ladies from that age, you know, um, like, you know, dressed all in black and she had like a, a foulard. And then uh, she would cook that on a little stove, like a little wooden stove in, in the side of the uh, the market and, and serve it like in oh, pieces of newspaper and just crack the paper and crack a lot of fresh cracked black paper and, and kind of make a corner out of it and serve it to you. And it's it's just like those memories that you know that I cherish as 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 being grown up now. But it's the kind of food and the thing that I wish people would be able to go and experience just as you did because you know an open air market is is, is great and we find. You know, you've got fishmongers that go fish everything out of Mediterranean. You've got people that comes down from the mountains and they're going to bring you like, you know, all the zucchinis and, 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 and the squash and the, uh, all the, the, the tomatoes and all the herbs. And it's, uh, you go over there and it's almost like being a chef. You feel like you just walked into a toy store because you've got so many things, but fresh rabbits and, and fish. And it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Last year, I was fortunate enough to visit Cognac and, specifically, the lovely boutique Cognac makers Cognac Bertrand. One of the co-owners of the family-run business, Therese Bertrand, was kind enough to give me her time and shared with us, amongst other things, what is Cognac and how it differs from brandy. On to today's topic, Cognac. First of all, can you explain what is cognac? Is it a wine? Is it a spirit? Is it a fortified wine? What exactly is it? So cognac is definitely a spirit, okay? So cognac falls into the category of brandy. That might be easier for people to understand, but not all brandies are cognac, right? So in order to be called cognac, it needs to be made from the AOC uh, protected area, uh, which uh, is mostly Charente and Charente Maritime. So in the region, I can say um, we are about 80,600 hectares of vines. That's a lot. We represent a big um, sort of culture. And um, so imagine if you pick up the grapes, right? You're going to press the grapes. You're going to let those grapes ferment into a wine. We're going to then distill that wine. 
And once it's distilled, you obtain what we call eau de vie, which is 70% alcohol. And that eau de vie, we're going to then age in oakwood barrels, which will then become cognac. Do the French have brandy as well as cognac? Or are oh, they yeah, absolutely. Having cognac? So brandy can be made anywhere around the world. Uh, it's mostly made of grapes and then is distilled. So that's like the big, big lines, right? But cognac has um, very, very many different strict rules. And in order to make cognac, first you need to be in this protected area. And then second, the second rule is the type of grape that you use. So in order to make cognac, um, you have to use this list of white grapes that you're only allowed uh, in order to make it. And the number one king of the, of the making of cognac is called Uniblanc, which is a relatively acidic uh, white grape. Um, which is also naturally resistant to like sicknesses and things like that. And it, it has a high capacity of production because you lose a lot as you make the, when you go towards making the cognac, you lose, you lose a lot of volume. So you need to start with a lot. So that's why we use mostly Uniblanc for those different reasons. Then you have another one, which is called Colombard, which might be more familiar to you from making white wines in general. And then you have another one, which is called Folle Blanche. But 90% of the producers here in the region use Uniblanc because of the reasons that I just mentioned. And it's, a, it's perfect for making cognac. I've been so fortunate with Fabulously Delicious that some of my food heroes have given up their time to come chat with me. And one such food hero is possibly the most popular French chef in Australia, Gabrielle Gattay. Gabrielle shared so much with me on this chat that it was hard to narrow down something to share with you here. At the end of the recording, I thought that I'd found a new friend. And I think after listening, you'll feel that way too. So I thought I'd share with you Gabriel sharing with us what his hometown and area in France is like. I can't tell you how excited I am with my next guest. He is a French food icon in Australia and around the world, thanks to his fabulous show that followed the Tour de France every year, a successful cookbook author, accomplished chef, and now an all-round Australian, with a French twist, of course, a little bit like me. Gabrielle Gattay, thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious. Merci beaucoup. It's a pleasure to speak to you, Andrew. And um, yes, I certainly cook with a French accent. Uh, as well as speak with a French accent. Right. Great. So you obviously then, by uh, your accent, you were born in France. So whereabouts were you born? I was born on the Loire Valley. Uh, the Loire is the largest, largest river in France, going from uh, practically east uh, to, to west. And, it, you know, the, the Loire uh, goes into the Atlantic. Uh, it's a very large river. It's the longest in France, the widest, not, not the, the biggest flow. It's uh, very hard for, uh, for tourists to go on, on the river. There's little spots, but it, there's no big uh, tourist attraction from the middle of the river. But the side of the river is wonderful because um, we have the chateaux uh, of the, the kings. We have, uh, it's called, the region is called the Garden of France. Uh, 
fabulous for uh, for fruits, for vegetables, for goat cheese, and and great wines. Being a young child in an area like that, it must have been idyllic to grow up in that area in France. Yes, it is lovely. It is also a region that uh, that has got a, a reasonably mild uh, climate compared to some other regions, like if you are in the Alps or in the Massif Central or or in the north of France. Uh, we get a little bit of uh, the, the Atlantic air, so it's, it stops it from being too cold in winter. Uh, it is still cold, but not, no, it's not as bad as in the mountain. And in summer, it's, it's very nicely mild. You know, it gets hot, but not very, very hot. So it's, for, it's really good for agriculture. So you mentioned the chateaus before. Amongst other things, it's what the Loire is, is definitely known for. So were there chateaus around where you live? Yeah, yes. I, uh, there was a chateau in my town, just uh, about 300 meters from my place that was uh, that is now more than 1000 years old um at some so it is uh, <laughs> uh, Catherine de Medici stayed there for a night with uh, with her husband the king of France on their way to uh, the just one night just for one night because remember oh. at that time they were traveling with uh, with horses and and carriage so uh, they stayed in uh, on their way to with the local noble people and where the duke uh, we still, there's still a duke, uh, in, you know, that has a chateau in, in the region. And, um, so it was, uh, he had, he had good connection and, and Catherine, Catherine stayed, uh, a few hundred meters from my place, uh, a few hundred, uh, a few hundred years before me. Right. I suppose that means that the chateaus were the Airbnb of, for the rich, uh, of their time. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was <laughs> right. the, the stop for any, you know, like you, if you were traveling from one part of France, you probably did a number of, I don't know, many kilometers they could do every day. Maybe, you know, changing horse, maybe quite a, a few. But, um, yeah, and they would have a, good local wines, good local food. That, you know, the Duke always, they always had cooks, of course. Of course. And Catherine, Catherine de Medici's importance in, in uh, European cuisine was, was really, you know, important because she loved food and she, brought some cooks from Italy with her that loved the, you know, that, that were good technicians, but they loved the food that they saw in France, you know, that, and the cheeses and, you know, the, the great fish and everything. Sylvie Coulon missed French markets so much when she moved to Sydney, Australia, that she set up one in Sydney. And it's been going from strength to strength. Sylvie chatted to us about French markets and she shared with us what makes the markets in Provence specifically so special. You lived in Provence and we mentioned, as we mentioned before, and Julia Child um, writes about this in her book, My Life in France. She writes about the markets in Provence and the amazing seafood and and things that uh, were available to her there. How different is the market in Provence to the rest of France? In Provence, if you go to a market, there's a lot of vendors, a lot of stalls. So there's an abundance of stalls. And even just visually, when you walk to a stall, in, to a market in, for example, in Nice or um, in the countryside somewhere in Provence, like Aix-en-Provence or Marseille or Martigues, just visually you arrive and there's this abundance of 
um, fruit and colors, you know, all these tools and the noise as well, because people are very loud. <laughs> you know, in Marseille, when they serve the seafood, it's like super loud. They're known for that. Um, you know, la vente à la crier. But um, the abundance of, like, visually the colors and the scents, that's, for me, that's, that's the typical South of France market where you arrive and there's all these amazing vibrant colors like orange and yellow and the lavender and you can the, the smell like of the spices because there's a lot of people um selling also the spices i don't know if you've been to arles the market in arles ah uh, oui yes well i mean it's just like you need you need a day to walk through the old market, right? Yeah. So there is a bit of everything, but when you go into the food section, for me, the, the sense, I'm very sensitive to sense. So for me, it's something very strong. Um, it's just a mix of all these scents of lavender and spices and basil and uh, olive oil and marinated olives. That's for me, that's a market in Provence. Do you know what the history of restaurants in Paris are all about? Well, Alec Lombrano, a famed food writer in Paris, filled us in on all this, but I just love the fact that he wouldn't actually say the name of the oldest restaurant in Paris. Listen to find out why. It's hilarious. On to today's subject, Paris restaurants. There's a lot of information out there about the history of restaurants in Paris. So first up, I wanted to ask you, what is the oldest restaurant in Paris and is it still running? Well, that, that, um, that, that title is sort of disputed. I mean, there's a couple of different people who would claim to be the oldest restaurant in Paris. I'm not going to say the name of the place that actually may be the oldest one in Paris because somebody might hear it and forget that I said not to go there. So I'm not... <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was going to ask that. So what's the food like and should we go there? That was going to no, be my next question. Okay. And I know what it's like because I love listening to podcasts. And, and you know, you, you, you glean... I mean, your nobody's attention span is focused all the time. So you glean bits and pieces of things and throw away these crumbs. And then, but um, no, I mean, restaurants really began after the French Revolution when all of these, you know, all of these chefs were looking for work. And restaurant, as you know, means you know to restore. Restaurer is to restore. And in this instance, it was the idea of you know uh, restoring your health or nourishing you. And a lot of these were almost like uh, soup restaurants that started up with different types of bouillon that were garnished variously. Um, and, you know, the, the, the concept grew from there. I mean, as France was slower than, than much slower than England to industrialize, but, you know, as, as Paris grew, I mean, there were, there were always places, you know, I mean, there were Charcutier. Uh, I mean, Charcutier always had people didn't have ovens, so you know, you'd go to buy a baked ham from the Charcutier because you didn't have an oven at home. There were always places to go and buy food. Um, going deep into the Middle Ages in Paris, cooked food, um, but the idea of actually going somewhere and sitting down at a table and allowing someone who you don't you didn't know to cook for you um, really began after the you know in earnest after the Revolution, French Revolution. Jeffrey Finch does tours in Paris if you'd like to combine wine and Paris on your next trip. 
Jeffrey has one of those voices that you could just listen to for hours, and it was great to learn all about the vineyards of Paris from Jeffrey, especially how many there are. I had no idea that there were so many, or how important the Paris wine industry was to France, or, well, probably is to France. Take a listen. Well, on to today's topic, the vineyards of Paris. Most people would know of the vineyard at Montmartre. I know I certainly did. Um, but how many vineyards are there in Paris? There's not just the Montmartre one. Okay, this is an interesting story because I, uh, when I first, like you, I mean, I've, and like most people um, living in Paris, I knew that there was the, the vineyard of Montmartre. And I knew also, I'd seen a couple of others, but I didn't really know much about them. And it took a while before I started to take a real interest. And then when I started researching the subject, I was kind of astounded by um, just how extensive they are. Uh, or, ex- or let's say how present the vine is in, in Paris. Because first of all, you need to know that um, the vineyards around Paris, the vineyards of Paris and the Paris region, were the largest in the world up until two centuries ago. And that's something that no one really knows. Very, very few people are aware of this. It's it's a story that's just been eclipsed. The story of, of the, wine, the vines of, of France, you could say. But Paris itself, to this day, I mean, right now, has, I've, I mean, what is a vineyard? What constitutes a vineyard? Well, for me, it's basically any collection of vines. A collection of, you know, 12 or 10, whatever, vines can constitute a vineyard. And that is the smallest vineyard in Paris is exactly that, 12 vines. Um, and that's that's Saint Germain des Prés. There are, um, by my own, by my reckoning, there are thirty-one vineyards. Wow! Yes, and wow. eleven of those actually produce wine. So, when were the first vineyards in Paris? First, okay. Well, the first vineyards go back to the Romans. Uh, the Romans, the Romans were um, as they moved north. Well, there was actually no the Gauls. Uh, were actually producing wine, I think, prior to the to the Romans. Um, but I don't know what we don't have enough information really about that. At least I don't know enough about it. I just know that the vine was definitely propagated by the, the Romans because, for the Roman army, uh, wine was an essential condiment. It was it was part of the um, uh, the daily rations of a soldier was to have um, I don't know a liter of wine or two liters of wine, whatever it was. So they needed uh, to. And it, of course, wine being liquid is—it's um, heavy and it's, it's kind of—it's you know to transport it's difficult. So they just planted vineyards everywhere they went, and they would they would basically use the soldiers whose family had vineyards um, in Italy back home, um, and those people would take over and, and plant vines. So they brought cuttings with them. They would plant, travel, and and plant vines, and you know, the vine flourished throughout France for that reason. When we're talking about wines in Paris, though, what's the region that we're talking about? Like, is it Paris is in like the the around the peripheric, or is it the whole of Paris? What region no, are we talking about? Yeah, no, I'm just talking about within intramuros. In other words, as far as the peripherique, within the peripherique. The rings, you know, the circle that goes around the city, um, which is, a, you know, it's a small area, but that's that's the thirty-one vineyards outside of Paris. And if you take in the the whole of the region, which is called the Ile de France, the island of France, um, it, which is, you know, it's a, uh, one of the regions of, of, the, of the country, uh, there are two hundred vineyards altogether. 
Amazing. I had no idea. Another one of those food heroes that I've talked about before that I've had the pleasure to chat with and who just shared so much with us about his love of French cheese is famed cheesemonger Will Studd, who you might know from the popular show Cheese Slices. If you haven't seen it, you should look it up ASAP. It's really a fabulous show. Will was on to talk about Roquefort cheese, but also told us a fabulous story about how camembert cheese became so popular and important to French cheese. What is it about French cheeses that make them so special? Do you think they have? Well, they have a fa- they have a fascinating history. Uh, they're very there's a, they're, they're very diverse. Um, so there's, there's, there's a lot of lot of French cheeses. I mean, there's, there's, we talk about 380 that de Gaulle mentioned, but there's more than that. Uh, they have a fascinating history um, that and, and they're 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 linked to place. So every every notable cheese in France has a story, and that story, the more you you look for it, it's it's quite fascinating. It's um, I find it fascinating. Anyway, I'm not sure everyone does, but in my by living in Australia and trying to explain uh, the, the stories, it, it's 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 I find it's been fascinating. I mean, I, I think that probably if you talk to most people about uh, say take let's take a national treasure like Camembert. You, you will hear the story about how a priest who worked in the Brie region um, escaped um, during the French Revolution and, and was running to England and stopped over at a farmhouse in, in the village of Camembert. And because he'd worked in the Brie region, he showed this farmer's wife, Marie Harel, how to turn a really stodgy sort of like washed rind cheese, um, how to put a mould grow a mould on the outside of it and so miraculously um, Camembert was created. It's a good story but well, everyone knows that, well anyone, every, most people know that but what people, it gets, it gets much more complicated than that because yes the, the typical cheeses of Normandy were washed rind cheeses, they date back to the monks who arrived from probably from Ireland in the ninth century and started making those cheeses and washing them and washed rind cheeses like Pont Levesque and Livro. And, 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 and Camembert certainly was sold in the Vimoutier, um, you know, sometime around the early 1800s. But Camembert doesn't start to make a name for itself until, this is the bit you don't read about, until the 1850s when railways went, um, were opened up to Normandy, and suddenly the Normans could compete with the with the with with the brie producers by sending cheese on a, on a train. Until then, we talked earlier in, a, in the other episode about transport. Without a train, you can't get cheese from Normandy, soft cheese from Normandy to Paris in time, particularly in the middle of summer. Um, and and you've got to remember, in the eighteen fifties, soft cheese was primarily carted around between layers of straw. The, the, the burgers of the, the cheesemakers of Brie, they would collect the, the cheeses from the farms. The, the different sizes would depend on how many cows the farm had. So, you know, Brie Nangis would be a one kilo cheese. Columier would be a much smaller cheese because they came from smaller farms and Brie de Mo was the big cheese. And they would be, they would be, uh, carted around to, to, to brick sellers in the Brie, to Brie region. And, and, and the, the affineurs in those regions would ripen the cheese after collecting them from the farms and then take them to the Paris market um, between layers of straw on the back of a, a horse and cart. 
which I hate to think what it was like in summer, but, you know, so <laughs> that's, how, that's how cheese was transported. So 1850s, long come railways and Normandy. And Normandy suddenly could send cheese to, to Paris. And, and Camembert makes a miraculous um, appearance around 1865 when Napoleon um, visits the region to open the railway and someone presents him with the cheese and it's named Camembert. And, and that, so that story, that's the story. But really, Camembert doesn't make a name for itself in the, in the Paris markets until something much more important happens in the 1890s, which is when um, the, uh, the, the village of Livero um, has got this um, box makers that's making these poplar wooden box for, the, for chemists to, to, keep, um, to keep pills in. And someone comes up with the bright, bright idea of putting cheese into it. And, and, and so the Brie producers are still chucking, taking their cheese to the market in Paris between layers of straw, and the Normans come up with this idea of putting their cheese in a box. And that box has, it becomes really important because when they pop it on the train, it's still maturing. It's not refrigerated. And so, so that's one thing, but it also means when it gets to the Paris market for the, for the housewife in the Paris market or whoever's buying the cheese, it's a very convenient, it's a mass-produced, you know, it's a very convenient cheese to just pick up and take home. You don't have to get it cut from layers of straw. It's not going to drip everywhere. It's in a box. And even more importantly, the box has got a brand. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's Normandy Camembert. It's got, and then, and then, then you can see, if you look at through the labels of Normandy Camembert, there's lots of fun and games about over the years of what Normandy Camembert has been called. But essentially, you know, that that suddenly this cheese becomes mass market cheese. So so that's the background. But it gets more fascinating where after the First World War, um, the the, uh, the, the the there was a German doctor goes to the Camembert region and discovers that raw milk Camembert is really good for your gut. And, and, and at the same time, you have the, um, the French trying to rebuild the country and they're looking for uh, symbols like a Joan of Arc. So they, they take the story of Marie Harel and they turn it into a national symbol of this woman cheesemaker who creates this national cheese, Camembert, which everyone understands. And, and, and so they build this image, this story of Marie Harel around Camembert. So it's part of a um, French government sort of PR game. So, so all, those, all, all those things, when, when you start putting them together, you know, that's Camembert. It's a national treasure. But it's it's got a story, and I could I could keep going about Comte and whatever. I love going into those stories and, and digging around and coming from so far away gives you, and particularly with a with a, with a, with a camera crew, gives me such opportunity to go in and discover stuff that people never think about. Finally. At the end of each episode, I always ask my guests, what's the most fabulous thing about France to them? Bruno Feldson, the French judge on the great Canadian Bake Off, who I had the pleasure to talk about his life, both personal and professional, and his time on the Bake Off, was a highlight of this chat. If you're a fan of cooking competitions, then you'll also want to listen about his time on the Bake Off. 
But it was Bruno's answer to my final question that I remember for the fact that it was so off-kilter and not something that I thought he was going to say. Finally, my question that I ask everybody on Fabulously Delicious. So I have to ask you, um, you have to have a think about it, I think, but what to you is the most fabulous thing about France? I think what we don't... French music. You know, techno, house, French house music. Uh, it's extremely creative and it's embraced and used all over the world, thanks to immigrants who come to France who contribute a lot to every aspect of music. French music is used in LA, and you know, if, if you take Rihanna, uh, all the, <clears throat> the hip-hop artists, they all work with French DJs and French house music for that new tones, and people forget about it. I mean, there is a Coachella uh, festival this week, and two, two of the biggest groups are French. I never heard about them, but they came from France because the sound is different. You know, David Geddes created that sound that other people grab and took. So that's a part of music people, you know, everybody thinks good music is English. It's, 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 it's been, make it, they made it better for the vast audience, but they always learn and, you know, uh, come back to the French. It's one part, you know, even in, in Vegas, I have a friend who worked for Celine Dion. <clears throat> He told me five years ago, 80% of tickets sold in Las Vegas were out of Quebec creation. Céline Dion and three Cirque du Soleil shows were run at the same time in Las Vegas. Every year, we're talking about $4 billion of tickets. 80% were Canadian created content, French-speaking creation of, and people forget about it. So it's a strength. I think French culture is very unique and creative. When I travel, the French language unique you unite people in a way that English or Spanish does not unite people. That's it for another episode of Season 3 of Fabulously Delicious. Thank you so much for listening and enjoying Fabulously Delicious, as I hope you are, and for being with me for the last two years. I'm so looking forward to bringing you more Fabulously Delicious episodes in the future, and hopefully many more years of it. If you like this episode, or if you know someone that should be listening to Fabulously Delicious, then please share it around with your friends, family, or colleagues. If everybody that listens shared the episode with somebody, then that would double my audience, wouldn't it? Hmm, I think it would. Okay, so please do share me around with your friends and family. Thank you for listening. And remember, you know what my motto is? Whatever you do, do it fabulously. Merci beaucoup and bon app.
Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading! reading.